picking up where we left off. A Holling Center podcast. Hosted by Michael Carroll. Welcome to Picking Up Where We Left Off. I'm Michael Carroll, Executive Director for the Holling Center for International Dialogue. The Holling Center has held over 50 dialogue conferences on topics in international relations, such as human security, responsible business, the environment, regional policy, and higher education. During those dialogues, we heard fascinating discussions with renowned experts in multiple fields and from many countries. Often following these dialogues, we ponder the question, what's next? To answer that, we decided to bring back some of the experts that continue the discussions and further new ideas. Every two weeks, we'll cover a different topic with two of our past participants. The Middle East and North Africa region urgently needs ethical and sustainable solutions for the plethora of challenges it faces, including the pressure of displaced populations, growing unemployment, armed conflict, environmental concerns, public health, and the lack of food and water security. Throughout the center's history, we've convened dialogue conferences on programs aimed at sustainable economic growth and diversification. In particular, the center has looked at how the business sector and entrepreneurship can play a role in addressing these challenges. One such program, held in 2017, was called Profits to Peace, the business case for promoting positive peace. Another, held virtually in 2020, was called Not Business as Usual, Engaging the Private Sector for Resilient Societies. Both were part of the center's initiative on responsible business. To pick up where we left off on responsible business, we have two past participants that have participated in multiple dialogue programs in this series. Dr. Christina Beish is a research affiliate at Queen's University and an adjunct faculty member at the Brussels School of Governance. Previously, she was a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics and Political Science, Ideas, and a visiting fellow with the Wilfrid Martin Center for European Studies. Christina received her PhD from the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Warwick. Her dissertation focused on the impact of the Turkish private sector on human economic security and peace in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. Nikola Ruhana is currently the chairman and CEO of IM Funding, grouping IM Capital and IM Ventures, 60 million in programs respectfully funded under the USAID MENA Investment Initiative and the Lebanon Investment Initiative, providing matching capital, equity guarantee, technical assistance to businesses and investors in Lebanon. Between 2002 and 2015, Nikola was the executive director of Berrytech, a leading technology business innovation and incubation center in Lebanon. He is currently also the vice president of the Internet Society of the Lebanon chapter, board member of Berrytech, and several Lebanese technology companies, and is the current chairman of the Speed at BDD Accelerator. Nikola has a telecommunications engineering degree from St. Joseph University in Beirut, a PhD in networking systems from the Université Pierre-Emerie Curie in Paris, and the EDP graduate from INSEED, France. So I'd like to begin uh, with both of you just maybe talking a little bit about what is the business case for the private sector entities to promote peace in fragile and conflict settings? Why, why is it valuable for businesses to be directly involved in that type of peace building initiative? Sure. I don't know, Nicholas, if you remember, we had dinner in Beirut, probably like in 2019 or 20. I was I was in Beirut for a, a delegation with the European People's Party. 
And we talked about um, what we even mean by peace. And I think, um, I think oftentimes um, the traditional kind of notion of peace relates to an absence of uh, physical violence or even the absence of the threat of physical violence. Um, whereas on the flip side, a positive peace uh, perspective would have a broader construct of the meaning of peace that would include perspectives within society that are related to inclusion, to equity, to equality, to human rights, to labor rights, and so forth. And so from that perspective, I think we can see how the private sector would have a direct impact on the development of a peaceful society. It must have been prior 2019, because we've had the, the October uh, revolution and riots, October 2019, so I'm guessing it was before that you came to Beirut, because afterwards, I'm guessing, you know, it wasn't a safe place to be. And then we had the, the economic crisis, you know, banks uh, shutting down and, you know, the uh, devaluation started. And then we entered COVID in March 2020. And then we had the Beirut blast in August 2020. And then in 2021, we've had, you know, fuel shortages and all the, the, the social crisis that we've been through. So uh, during these two years, I mean, uh, true, there was no, you know, uh, conflict as, as now we're seeing in, in Ukraine, you know, invasions and stuff, but we had, were we at peace? I mean, is this peace uh, or, or positive peace or, or negative peace? It's, it's really, you know, uh, uh, the blow that you get in the minds and the mindset of people is, is really, really very, very hard. So, uh, and, and companies and, and, you know, in, in Lebanon, we had political conflicts and you have the private sector that's trying to survive. And both do not talk, and it's like, you know, two different speeds, two different species, two different worlds. So nothing is happening on the uh, political side, and yet you have the private sector that needs to survive and to, and to thrive, and, and to, to keep at it, you know, and to, to sustain the jobs and keep growing, you know, and, 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 and so it's, it's, it's really tough. And, and you know, when, when people are on the streets, because you know there are riots, etc. It's because there is societal crisis and there is the risk of losing their jobs and there's a devaluation, etc. So we'd have to have the private sector be able to absorb and to keep running and to keep you know this this confidence and and people at work and getting keeping them busy working and keeping their jobs, you know, so so that you know uh, people can can get some a bit of confidence and and calm. And we've seen that it's very important to to contribute to at least the stability of the economy and the, the, the society. Let me, let me jump in for a second to, to backtrack because both of you referred to some terms that um, uh, those listening may not be entirely familiar with. The, the concept of positive peace and negative peace. The very basic you know, element of negative peace is this absence of uh, physical violence or even the absence of the threat of physical violence. So if you were to look at from a private sector perspective, um, you would be looking at companies, for instance, who are engaged in the war economy and you know, purposely engaged in the war economy. Um, whereas if you were to look at a positive peace paradigm, you would be looking at a broader perspective or a multidimensional perspective of peace, which would include, for instance, whether or not there's good governance you know, in society, whether or not the government is providing um, services you know, equally uh, across, you know, its its territories. So, for instance, um, before even the civil war broke out in Syria, the Assad regime was not equally distributing 
services across the country, um, in part because it was withholding the provision of services to uh, territories that it thought were or were in, in fact um, opposition held areas. You would look at the, at the status of human rights, whether or not there's um, adequate regulations in place to ensure that you know, corporate abuse doesn't happen. And if it does, that there's proper you know, remedies, legal frameworks to, to remedy those, those abuses. So it's a more multidimensional perspective of what we think of when we think of the term peace. Then I want to compare what we're going through today, you know, as economic crisis in post-conflict Lebanon, you know, as opposed to the in-conflict Lebanon in the 75 to 90. I mean, at the time, because I've, I've lived both, you know, at the, both uh, times. And at the time, I, I remember, I mean, today it's even tougher, you know, it's even tougher economically because uh, you have, banks are inexistent, you can't have access to money, you know, you can have access access to, to the funds, etc. Whereas when we were at war at the time, I mean, banks were always open, you had access to liquidity, etc. So it's, it's, it's really funny how, you know, sometimes we say, I mean, we went to 15 years of real actual war, and we didn't feel the economic crisis. Today, we're at peace, and we're feeling economic crisis. You know, at the time, we had access to liquidity. Today, we don't have access to liquidity. So... You know, what, what I'm sensing here from, from the two of you, from, from almost the academic perspective, is that people need to understand that the absence of conflict does not necessarily equal peace. And I think that, you know, that's kind of an oversimplification of what's being discussed here, but that the absence of conflict doesn't also mean economic opportunity, uh, doesn't mean stabilization, anti-corruption, anything of that nature, where you know, uh, excellent examples that, that you gave from Lebanon, basically saying, actually, in some cases, the business environment is way worse than it was than when there was a conflict period. So, you know, particularly, you know, citing the, the Lebanese example here, you know, are there, there businesses, are there initiatives, are there entrepreneurs that are starting to try to break through this corrupt system that you were talking about? I know a lot of the work that you've been doing has been trying to make capital available, which is some of the things that you were saying is, is unavailable and preventing that kind of business development. Um, but also, you know, are there some examples that can be cited either in Lebanon or elsewhere that, that we're aware of um, where businesses are actually having that kind of positive peace impact on the community, the, these entrepreneurs, these small businesses, that, that type of thing. So I think for, for me, I think it's really important to frame the business for peace field. So the business for peace field um, emerged, it's a multidisciplinary field that emerged about 15, 20 years ago, and it's still in its infancy, I would say, infancy stage. Um, it leans on business ethics and peace and conflict management studies, um, you know, on gender studies, increasingly environmental studies. Um, and we really take the approach of the business itself in terms of how we measure its impact or its uh, effectiveness with regards to its engagement in the operations in, in the area that it has its operations and and also in the companies and its supply chain but we really look at how a company uh, operates internally so we look at its core business model in terms of how it hires any potential employees whether or not that company uh, really makes an effort um, to ensure that its employees have access to equal opportunities and trainings and you know, uh, upward mobility within the company. And we look at how a company interacts with the broader labor market. So for instance, how it does actually perform in terms of hiring 
Um, and then we also look at how a company engages, of course, with the government and try how it tries to influence policy um, and then its impact on the environment and communities. So I think if you take from that perspective, I think many of um, the business activities in the Middle East and North Africa region, just from the sheer, sheer sense um, or space in terms of its engagement in the communities is already a positive influence. It's not only necessarily about ensuring that a company just doesn't do harm, meaning it doesn't conduct human rights violations, but also in terms of its its own engagement in the community, I think that is something that is uh, positive and, and should be uh, highlighted. Yeah, okay. So uh, I, will, I will give you a couple of, of initiatives that we actually did to contribute to, you know, this ecosystem after the crisis. So the first initiative, I mean, as you said, Michael, after the economic crisis in Lebanon, uh, start, which started, you know, uh, deteriorating in October 2019, uh, access to capital is inexistent. You know, banks disappeared, no liquidity, they all went bankrupt, you know. Uh, and, and so we, prior to that, we had an ecosystem and like about seven or eight VCs that were really pumping uh, money in the ecosystem. And suddenly there's a dry spell, you know, everyone disappeared, money disappeared, etc. And luckily enough, and really lucky enough, we were the only fund, you know, the 40 million that you mentioned, are, you know, came just after the revolution, which is really a breath of fresh air. And so we said, wow, we have this resource and we have to really do something about it, you know. And so during, uh, so we, we, we created a fund and we called it the SOS Fund, Save Our Startups Fund. And the idea was really to give uh, investment to give investment uh, already existing uh, startups to help them give them runway and and weather the storm of of the economic crisis and covid uh, which by the way during the first uh, uh, i mean wave of covid every the world stood still there was not even investments outside lebanon you know so so we created this sos fund save our startup fund 12 million dollar fund you know that we we really created and raised in in like 6 months we chose uh, 12 startups and we invested a million dollars in each of those startups over a record time of, of six months. So this is, you know, uh, the, the, we needed to be fast, relevant, we pivoted, and we were able to, uh, to save, I would say, you know, 11 to 12 startups and give them enough runway for them to survive. And then after the Beirut blast, you know, August 4 blast, so this is our, our role. Uh, and we said, we, uh, so, we had a portfolio of companies. Some did not get affected by the blast because they were outside Beirut, et cetera, but at least their, their clients uh, got affected. And when your client gets affected, it means you have loss of revenues because this client of yours used to buy your product or services, and now he will no longer buy your product or service. So one, you get loss of revenues as a company, and two, the affected client is no longer buying because and he can no longer sell this product because it's been affected. He's unable to buy it because he's not, he's, he's lost his business. So what we did is we came up with another initiative called the IMERIT, which is the IM Emergency Relief Initiative, where we took 16 of our portfolio companies and we told them, listen guys, give us the list of your affected clients and what's the loss of revenue that you get because these guys were affected. And so we draw a map and we, we, we tell them over four months, we will pay for the orders that normally these companies or your, 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 your clients would have asked for. 
So one, we pay for your, uh, uh, we, we, we cover the loss of revenues, that's one. So one, you keep working, you keep providing the service, you keep the jobs, etc. And two, you give this service or product for free for the underlying. And these companies, the underlying would be able to sell and you know, make revenues and keep the jobs, etc. And, and this new model of, of engagement was really, really, really superb. Over four months, we were the, the, the outreach and the, the, the uh, if you want, the, the impact, the ripple effect over these two tiers was hum humongous. We were able to reach 6,000 families, save hundreds of jobs, you know, over the period of four months. And again, the buzzword was to be quick and efficient and, and you know, deploy, deploy fast. With the few minutes we have left, I, I, I like, Nicola, how you were talking about, you know, you have to pivot, have speed, be action, you know, action. And, but I also think there's a long game here. So the, the last thing I'd like to talk about is, you know, this question of how we can um, make the concepts that we're discussing here more part of the education uh, of trainings, uh, of things like that, so that this is when people formulate their business ideas, when they do their startups, when they do their mom and pop shops, that they're thinking about some of these concepts. And, you know, if they, whether it's an SME, a small to medium enterprise or, or something larger, how can we build in some of this idea of a positive piece of paradigm into it? Now, I know one of the big problems, in my opinion, and I, I come from an education background, is business schools. They have a very, dare I say, old school approach about what a business is and what a business is to do. And you're not supposed to go beyond the concept of providing value to your shareholders or value to the owner. So maybe with the last couple of minutes, is there any uh, initiatives or thoughts that you may have, uh, both of you, about how we can actually get some of these concepts more regularly into the education curriculum uh, for the long term, so that when we get beyond some of these uh, pivots and sudden actions or, or quick actions that need to be taken to keep startups afloat. How can we make this part of the more regular knowledge set for anybody that's starting a business? There are some pretty good international initiatives. Um, one is the UN uh, Global Compact and the UN Global Compact particularly has an initiative called the Principles for Responsible Management Education or PRIME. And it's a global initiative that's meant to support business and management schools in the development of curriculum that would then uh, facilitate learning around the sustainable development goals. And I chair one of the uh, one of nine active working groups on business for peace. And part of it is about building awareness um, amongst business and management schools on these critical peace and security uh, paradigms. Um, and then trying to make the business case for businesses to, you know, build or develop an awareness of their operations and how that they potentially impact the, the factors that then determine whether or not instability or fragility uh, lead to either durable peace or on the flip side, armed conflict or uptick in violence. Um, there's also another really good initiative called the Global, um, Global Business School Network that is similar to, to Prime. Um, that is very focused on non-Western business and management uh, schools. Um, and then I think um, there are these other uh, international frameworks that are helping the private sector move along in terms of promoting ethical, responsible business practices. So you have the UN guiding principles of business and human rights. You have the OECD responsible business practices. 
Um, and then just yesterday, the European, uh, the EU Commission um, passed a new directive on human rights due diligence. Um, but it does move this shift from voluntary human rights due diligence to mandatory due, uh, mandatory human rights due diligence. Um, it will unfortunately only refer to upfront a very small percentage of European companies that will have to assess any human rights risks within their operations, as well as their supply chains. Um, it's only going to be mandatory for companies um, that have 500 employees or more and a net turnover of 1.5 million. It will also include companies that don't meet that threshold, but that operate or engage in high risk uh, human rights uh, sectors or sectors that have potential for human rights uh, abuses. So sectors like textile, garment, uh, agriculture, fisheries, extractive industries. So I think it's also going to set a precedence uh, for other companies that are coming behind, you know, smaller size SMEs, um, and then other companies that are moving in that direction. There is the stuff that you can, you learn at business schools or school or whatever, and there is the reality of the market, okay? What we've been missing in Lebanon for the last two years is something unheard of, honestly, literally, we have four exchange rates to the dollar for the Lebanese pounds. Four. Okay, so there's an official bank rate, which is 1,500 Lebanese lira. There is another one that's 8,000. There is another platform which gives you at 20,000. And there's a black market at 25,000. So imagine auditing a company, you know, with this, looking at the books. That's one. They don't teach you that in, in business schools when you have four FX exchange rates. Imagine valuation of a company in these four FX rates. How do you, when I invest in a company, what's the value of my shares when I invest in the company? And do I give it a Lebanese pound at, at what rate? And do I give it a US dollar at what rate? Again, this is unheard territory. We don't have any reference. We've been working with this environment for the last two years. Just as a you know, personal side note, this is one of the reasons why when I was doing more work in education, I was not exactly a big fan of the MBA because it doesn't look at, you know, that there's an innate skill set that you learn. And there's also, you know, your experiential skill set, uh, which I don't really think, you know, uh, curricular instruction is always the best at. So I think you, you made a really good point here where um, the type of environments that we're talking about in many cases when we're trying to build um, economies with a positive peace paradigm, you know, they don't fit in as nicely into a textbook sometimes. Uh, they don't fit nicely into a training program. So it really comes down I th you know, from what I'm hearing to, you know, providing access, making sure that these concepts are in mind, but, you know, creating as best as you can an environment where that can flourish. And in some places, it just, it's like Lebanon, it's going to be exceedingly difficult. Um, hence why, you know, I'm an admirer of your work. So with that, um, we actually have to wrap up. Uh, this, this session. Uh, so I want to thank both of our guests uh, for joining us today. Well, thanks, Mike, for having me and especially to the Holling Center for continuing to be part of the discussion on how the private sector can be part of the solution in creating inclusive and peaceful societies. Thanks for having us, Michael. The Holling Center for International Dialogue is a nonprofit, non-governmental organization dedicated to fostering dialogue between the United States and countries with predominantly Muslim populations around the world. 
In pursuit of this mission, the Holling Center convenes dialogue conferences that generate new thinking on important international issues and deepen channels of communication across opinion leaders and experts. To learn more, go to hollingcenter.org.